0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Blogging Heads Nation. This is a long-delayed summer issue of Dresbert. I'm Heather Hurlburt. I run the New Models of Policy Change Initiative at New America. And, drumroll please, I am now a foreign affairs columnist at New York Magazine. Yay! Yay!
1: Do the Muppet thing. Yeah!
0: Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh dear. Our confirmation hearings were just shot to hell again, Dan.
1: But we will have a hell of a gif when it happens. Um, I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Uh, I write spoiler words for the Washington Post. I'm also a non resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And hey, what do you know? I also have a book that came out recently called The Ideas Industry, How Pessimist Partisans, and Plutocrats Are Transforming the Marketplace of Ideas. Add uh, available at a bookstore near you. So, I will
0: I will just say I will just say that I have now been in more than one room of a think tank here in Washington DC and people have invoked that book. So people Dan's book is trendy. I would say that it's hot, except that it's 95 degrees and really humid outside, and hot is not a good thing at the moment.
1: Yes. Also, it's a book about think tanks. I mean, let's face it, or partially about think tanks. You can only get so trendy. Uh, I thought you were going
0: to say you can only get so
1: hot, but... That's... um, (laughs) That, well... Um, But the
0: other other thing we want to start out by saying is that we have the best fans in the business, Um, and we have the best Twitter followers in the business, which is to say that when Dan put out a call for subject matter for this... Dresbert, um, the response was several PhD dissertations worth. Basically, um, because I believe in truth and advertising, we are going to let you down. This is this is not going to be quite as good as the incredible thread of ideas, but it is going
1: to be also. We're better. not going to write your dissertations for you, graduate students. Nice try. That's not how this works. Sorry. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> but this is going to be a this is going to be a better blogging heads than if we had just sat here going, oh, should we talk about your latest article or my latest article. So thank you. Yes. And to start things off,
1: we are going to talk about the Trump administration's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Change Treaty.
0: And we are now, you know, we are we are now two weeks out from that, and damn it, the world is hotter already, Dan.
1: <laughs> well, that's sh- if that isn't causality, I don't know what is. Thanks. Uh,
0: that's what you have the Ph.D. for. See. Exactly.
1: No, that would that would be a case of temporality, not necessarily beating causality. But that said, uh, it is interesting to note uh, the myriad fallout of this. I would say this falls under the category of foreign policy actions that Trump actually got somewhat more support from conservatives than others, I guess. Um, in, in that, let's say, they were far less comfortable on the NATO stuff, for example. Um, although I have to admit, the criticism that was levied against Paris, I still don't quite understand. I can't figure out if this was a meaningless treaty and therefore it was a strictly symbolic move, but actually it was going to be crippling to the U.S. economy therefore, and therefore Trump did the right thing to do, which would imply that it was not symbolic. I'm extremely confused about the rhetoric on this.
0: Well, I, in some ways, was um, enormously grateful to our president for the speech he gave as he pulled the U.S. out of Paris, because he um, very kindly provided data to support a thesis I've been pushing um, for about a year now since, yeah, it's, it's it's a little more than a year, since the Ted Cruz boomlet. Remember the Ted Cruz boomlet? Um, that far-off moment in history. Um, and Trump found
1: out his father killed Kennedy, but yeah, go ahead, or- <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead.
0: Whatever it was. Um, so the the Trump climate speech, um, as as mendacious and self contradictory and flat out hostile as it as it was, is is really worth a look as a defining document for a school of thought in American foreign policy. Um, and I'm really sorry to put it that way, but. Um, I um, had the fun of writing a piece for the National Interest about this, that, that we have one poll of American foreign policy thought that basically says, if it isn't in the Bible or the Constitution, the US may not do it. And that um, is, is inconsistent in a variety of ways, but it's a very simple and consistent and in some ways um, intellectually appealing or emotionally appealing maybe idea and if you, if you look at the Trump's decision-making process around climate and who he got support from, he was sort of reasserting the core tenets that those folks hold dear, whether or not you can show that they have um, substantive outcome on the economy or on our security in any, any given case. But once you've accepted logically the idea that we're safer if we stick to our domestic sources of legitimacy and that those are really the only two there are, then everything flows from it very straightforwardly.
1: Um, I would agree in the sense that one of the things I found fascinating or one of the sort of minor key criticisms that you saw or supporting statements, I guess, of, of the decision to withdraw from Paris was the claim by some of, well, you know, if Obama really wanted this to be a lasting foreign policy achievement, why didn't he send it to Congress uh, for treaty ratification or to the Senate to the Senate for treaty ratification, which sort of elides or is a clever way of, uh, avoiding the obvious point, which is the Senate doesn't ratify treaties anymore. Um, and by that, I mean, they still have the capacity to do so according to the constitution, but I believe, uh, the last, the last new, major new treaty, start, right. New, new start. start was the last major treaty, Ratified by the u s. Senate. And at that moment, I believe the Democrats had sixty seats. Um, and the even then the, the, the Democrats only got, I believe, a third of the Republicans to vote with them on that uh, on that treaty. Um, the point is is that essentially, this, this 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 is a problem of increasingly high rates of political polarization have essentially meant that a, the Senate doesn't ratify treaties all that much anymore. B, even if you go from treaties to congressional executive agreements, which is what most trade agreements are at this point, uh, the political pulling and hauling required for that is fantastically difficult. And so as a result, we are wound up in a world where the primary means through which the United States conducts agreements with everyone else is through executive agreements, which is what the Paris uh, Climate Treaty was and what um, you know the Iran nuclear deal and a whole variety of other things are. Um, and unfortunately, those can be changed from president to president. Those do not are, are not nearly as binding. Um, so I, I found it disingenuous, I guess, by conservatives claiming, why can't you just ratify this through the Senate? Because it was never going to get ratified by the Senate. We can't pass a disabilities treaty or a conven- UN convention on the rights of the child, both of which are perfectly anodyne treaties. There's no way this was going to get through.
0: Well, I was just going to reference the uh, Disabilities Treaty, because that's, that moment is really yeah. the tell. And again, um, one of the benefits of the, uh, the Ted Cruz boomlet was, um, and I, I apologize, I don't remember which of our wonderful magazines this Ted Cruz profile was in, but um, the Disability Treaty was brought to Congress um, in the recess, after the, in the, the lame duck session after the session, after the election in which Ted Cruz was elected to the Senate. And um, so the two, th- the thing you need to know about the Disability Treaty is that it was based on American law. You know, we, us liberal internationalists, don't say that kind of thing out loud very often because you don't sort of want to brag about how you're imposing your legal structures on the rest of the world. But very much the the structure and content of the Disability Treaty was based on how, over the years, we've expanded protections for people with disabilities in this country. And when they brought the treaty to the floor, the thing they thought that would help get enough Republicans to get it over the line was um, the support of former Senator Bob Dole, who of course is, uh, has lived with a disability as a result of fighting for his country. Right. So yes. you know how could bulletproof, right? So Senator-elect Ted Cruz um, arrives from Texas to the lunch for incoming senators, which is supposed to be an occasion where you kind of sit quietly and shyly and show that you were properly awed by the institution and your betters. And Cruz apparently got up and gave fiery remarks at this luncheon about sort of what the voters, what the American voters who had just elected him um, were going to do to people who voted for this sovereignty infringing treaty.
1: And I don't know if that was the cause, but certainly the fact is is that even wheeling Bob Dole out onto the Senate floor as the vote took place failed to uh, convince two thirds of the Senate to support the treaty.
0: Yeah, Bob Dole is not going to unelect you from anything. Um, yeah. Ted Cruz voters and Donald Trump voters just might. So, you know, again, as I say, the the Paris moment, arguably it wasn't that important for the climate one way or the other. It was a watershed moment in sort of understanding. Who the parties are in um, American debate over foreign policy, and it was a watershed moment in terms of the European public's understanding of who America is and who Donald Trump is. Unfortunately,
1: let me ask you a question. So I'm going to ask you to put your predicting hat on. Now, my understanding of the the the, the legalities involving the <laughs> involving the Paris uh, the Paris Climate Change Treaty is that essentially. We gave notification of our intention to withdraw, but because of the way the treaty was designed, we can't legally completely withdraw from the treaty until, I believe, two or three days before Election Day of 2020, Um, which, of course, raises the obvious question of what will happen come then. I guess here's my question for you. Do you think that this will actually happen, and if so, will the U.S. withdrawal last longer than three months?
0: Well, I will note that what's really blindingly stupid about what we did is that it means that Americans won't get to sit at the table and help write some of the implementing regs for the agreement, um, which is really, I mean, you could, you could have used all that leverage and then still locked. Um, so it's, you know, another note. I mean, and I, I shouldn't even say stupid. Um, this is an administration that needed a short-term political win with its base to distract its From other things that are going on, but um, in the long run, that it was stupid.
1: Um, (laughs) There we go. Sorry,
0: and and that was you know my my technology had a little blip there, which conveniently gave me another five seconds. Um, If so, you're really asking me, Dan, to predict will Donald Trump still be in power in um, October 2020, and who will win the election?
1: Yeah, that was a – it might have been one way of getting at it. Sure. You can take the fifth on
0: this. (laughs) Um, I don't – I think – I do think he'll still be in office, Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think he'll be reelected. Okay. Um, It's an interest now. It's another interesting question. Is the Paris Treaty still the operative thing by the time – you know, President George Clooney gets around to um, resigning
1: it. Well, let, actually, let me ask you a slightly different question um, to go back to a time when we might have uh, potentially disagreed on stuff. You can argue that when George W. Bush was elected, there was a period actually pre-9-11 where Bush withdrew or announced his intention to not submit to the Senate a whole host of treaties that the Clinton administration had signed in their last Year in office, namely the Kyoto Protocol, but also the International Criminal Court. Um, And to be fair, conservative critics have argued that even though we did these things, and these things at the time, I remember this, were wildly reviled in Europe that that generated a similar kind of blowback. Um, And I remember the decision to pull out of Kyoto happened, and there was the same kind of disorganization in terms of the decision-making process, because Christy Todd Whitman, who at the time was the EPA head wasn't even consulted, I think, on the final decision or something along those lines. Nonetheless, the United States still wound up, you know, to some extent, exercising leadership in the ICC and eventually, you know, did play an important role in getting to the Paris climate change accord. So I guess the question I would ask for you is, do you think that, you know, let's say both Trump's activities, let's just say at the NATO summit, as well as um, this sort of decision on Paris represent a truly irreparable break for, you know, U.S. leadership as we under- as we have you know, understood it uh, during our adult lives.
0: Oh, I'm so delighted you brought that up because we have an ongoing argument at my house um, along the sort of same as Bush lines.
1: There we go. Okay. Uh,
0: where, where there's the oh yeah, but you know, like every every Republican president does this is is the way the argument goes at, at my house, mm-hmm. and um, and so in that sense you, the argument would be there isn't an irreparable break, and you have right. also still a fair amount of the centrist foreign policy establishment saying something no no the break's not irreparable yet we can fix it, mm-hmm. um, and and as I as I wrote the other week I do think the break is now is now irreparable. Not because not because Trump pulled out of a treaty. Mm-hmm. Um, but because this this comes, you know, the the, the W administration's reversals or, or long Hamlet like agonizing over um, a number of things came at a moment where you know one could argue US U.S. power was at its peak or still very near its peak, and we yes. ain't there anymore. So um, there's there's just less material to repair breaches this time around. There's less material to repair breaches this time around, and there's more. there's been more years of thinking about alternate arrangements. And yes, if you think I'm tiptoeing into that territory of saying, you know, yes, Obama was trying to move us to a post- unilateral moment world, yes, that is exactly where I'm going.
1: Um, no, what but, I'm intrigued by—well, oh, go ahead. No, no, off. go ahead. Go ahead. Go
0: ahead.
1: What, what, I'm, what I'm intrigued by is that you're making a, essentially a realist argument here. You're saying that the distribution of power is different now than it was in, in 2001. Um, yep. And that, therefore, what the Bush administration could could get away with in 2001, Trump cannot get away with in 2017. And I would say, I think there's some truth to that, but I will come back with a more constructivist argument about why this is different. Okay,
0: is everyone like holding on to their chairs? Because the world, when, when Dresner is the constructivist and I'm the realist, the world has truly turned upside down.
1: This is why I'm actually appealing. Uh, I, I'm very intrigued by this. Say what you will about the Bush administration, and particularly on this sort of sovereigntist move. By the time, particularly post 9-11, George W. Bush, for all of his... All the various foreign policy sins he committed did articulate a very clear social purpose behind American grand strategy which was the notion being that we have to make, the you know, we want to eliminate uh, terror from the world, but also actually genuinely try to promote democracy elsewhere, because that represented an extension of American values. This was a flip on what he campaigned about. But nonetheless, if you read, for example, his second inaugural, it is shot through with a very ambitious social purpose. Now, I'm not trying to say that he implemented it terribly well. That's a different thing. But there is something to be said if you're going to be the largest, most powerful country in the world— in articulating a foreign policy that actually manages to extend the notion of, I am not just in this for me, I see a world in which the United States prospers and, by the way, everyone else benefits as well. And we know this because the fruits of democracy are generally thought to be good and we want to promote human rights and so on and so forth. Now, again, you can argue that they you know, implemented this hypocritically or they didn't implement it terribly well at all. But very often in foreign affairs, even just articulating a, a, an ideal goal in foreign policy, I think, does matter. Um, and the interesting thing about Trump is that it's not just that he pulled out of these treaties. It's also the fact that he has absolutely no social purpose whatsoever that he articulates in terms of foreign policy beyond America first. Um, in other words, he's basically articulating a foreign policy of— We will get what is ours It is a zero sum world out there. Therefore, if we get what is ours, you ain't getting any. And in some ways, that was the the essence of the uh, the H.R. McMaster, Gary Cohn op ed uh, that also came out the same week as the the Paris uh, Accord uh, withdrawal, which I was the, the the language in that op ed was genuinely shocking, where they say things like there is no global community. You know, it's just a competition between states and corporations. And we embrace this world. Which, not even realists actually embrace that world. Okay, realists might think that that. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Them. Some some of them do. Some, some of them. them do, but re- I mean, you know, there's a reason why John Mearsheimer's book is called "The Tragedy of Great Power Politics." Most realists look at that and think, "Yeah, that's kind of inevitable, but it's not great. It's a tragedy, and maybe we could, you know." And and most other you know foreign policy scholars are thinking that might describe some of the world, but it doesn't describe the whole world, and we certainly don't want to say that out loud. So I, I, By the way, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think you're right about the realist point. I'm just trying to say that I think it's exacerbated by the fact that the Trump sort of foreign policy vision is so entirely exclusionary to the rest of the world that even those who want to agree with Trump on certain things won't be able to.
0: So I entirely agree, and I can't resist using this as an opportunity to say that that's why I've found that sort of the way that the Academy defines realism and constructivism in opposition to each other deeply irritating because I think the moment that we're now in um, and this is leading to one of our viewers questions by the way so everybody get ready viewer question coming up <laughs> um, it, it turns out that having an alleged social purpose for your sort of foreign policy, or having treaty arrangements that you actually stick to or having norms that you share, it turns out that those do have sort of real tangible consequences that even realists can see and acknowledge.
1: Yeah.
0: So like, why did we always have to insist, like why did real, why does realism have to ignore those real consequences just because they come from norms and institutions that aren't, um, you
1: know that don't have they don't have bullets in them. Let me put it this way. So my response to this is, um, and and I know there are certain people who are going to hate this, but I'm going to make a Harry Potter reference as a way of describing this. Where uh, I assume you've read the books. Um, if you remember, there's this scene in in the last one, Deathly Hallows, where uh, Harry has this vision. He's he's dreaming and he's he's actually able to have a conversation with Dumbledore, even though Dumbledore has you know moved on as it were. And at the very end of that chapter, when Dumbledore is basically explained to Harry Potter what was going on magically between him and Voldemort, Harry Potter says to, to Dumbledore, is this real life or is this going on inside my head? And Dumbledore was... Um, and so the point being that, that yes, yeah, so if you want to say there is a weakness to realism, you know, as, as academics, uh, academic realists, put it, it's that they sometimes fail to understand that there are other things beyond just material factors that occasionally guide states and non-state actors and so on and so forth. And so as a result, beliefs are actually important.
0: And so now we arrive at the question that our alert viewer um, asked you, Dan, which is, um, how have your views on reputation changed as a result of the um, Trump administration's interesting play with reputation in the international arena?
1: Um, So I think this is where I actually am going to get all academic-y, because I think that this conflates a couple of different things. So it's worth remembering that a lot of people lambasted Barack Obama, uh, particularly at the sort of key moment in, in September of 2013, when Obama articulated a red line on Syria, then decided he was going to ask for Congress to vote on it. Then it became clear that wasn't going to work. And at the last minute, surprising even his own cabinet, decided, I will take this uh, offer that Vladimir Putin has made about, you know, cooperation to get chemical weapons out of Syria. And the argument was, by walking away from his red line, Obama undercut U.S. reputation, thereby inviting all various sorts of actors to take advantage of it. Um, my belief on this is that I do think reputation uh, is a real thing in international relations. But I do tend to think that when we talk about it in foreign policy, it tends to be exaggerated in terms of its generalizability. So very often, and this was made at the time, for example, the, the claim was, was that Obama, by backing down on Syria, somehow invited North Korea to do something provocative. In other words, the, the notion that countries have singular reputations uh, for behavior is, I think, way overblown. The reputation matters, but it tends to matter much more in sort of specific dyads or relationships. It doesn't translate to other kinds of things. But more importantly there are two different kinds of reputation that are often involved. One is this notion of resolve in the face of crisis, of will I do something if pushed against the wall or what have you? But the other thing is the notion of credible commitment and extended deterrence. Um, and that's a sort of statement of, I will do X if this other thing happens, if an ally is threatened or if this other thing you know occurs. Um, and I think that to some extent, what what Trump Trump has genuinely undercut uh, us credible commitments that have existed for decades on issues like NATO or collective security with, with our allies. Um, as I think I wrote on Monday, we're in a situation now where Canada, Canada is questioning, you know, is is arguing, we have to articulate our own foreign policy because we can't trust the United States anymore. Canada is about the last country that should think this because regardless of what they feel about Trump, you know, Canadian grand strategy as we know it should be centered around how do we make sure that the United States is happy the fact that even the Canadians are now saying we're just not paying attention to you anymore we just don't trust you uh, says something about the degree to which Trump has has genuinely under you know weakened credible commitment and I think unfortunately another area here is Trump's own sort of bombastic rhetoric when it comes to foreign policy whether it's through social media or is sort of riffing on press conferences has simultaneously made him more predictable and less credible, which is to say that he huffs and puffs and then doesn't do that much. And as a result, other leaders now recognize that what he huffs and puffs, it doesn't necessarily amount to much.
0: I was desperately hoping that one of the two types of reputation was going to be Joan Jett's bad reputation.
1: I would never never preempt you from being able to mention that. Thank you. Um,
0: but this um, raises another point around sort of where we now are in Europe and where both the shenanigans around NATO and the shenanigans around climate um, have left us. And I think maybe contrary to to what what many of us thought even a few months ago, we were going to see in Europe, you you now have this you know incredibly empowered. Centrist government in France with a really ridiculous yes. part. You're not supposed to be able to get parliamentary majorities like that in actual democracies. That's not supposed mm-hmm. to happen. Um, you have Angela Merkel, who looked like she was in trouble uh, three, four months ago. You know, and, and what do both um, Merkel and Macron's campaigns have in common? They're going out and, in their different ways, trash talking, trash talking Trump for votes. That you had Macron and his people trolling Trump, just trolling Trump relentlessly yes. um, in the lead up to the legislative elections. You have Merkel going out on the stump, um, which is is not at all. And that,
1: I mean. And, and you have Theresa May, who was the one European leader who tried to befriend Trump and has, has reached out to Trump, doing horribly compared to expectations following her election.
0: Yes so and and you know this has happened in europe in the past i I mean the the 70s um were certainly a period where it wasn't always a plus for a european leader standing for re-election to be perceived the 80s also as as close to to an american leader or
1: 2002 when gerhard schroeder ran uh, for re-election he was behind and he ran explicitly on the platform of no German troops will be involved at all in the invasion of Iraq, even if the UN Security Council authorizes it. That's what got him elected.
0: And so, paradoxically, it seems to me that that's one of the more reversible trends that we've seen in in recent years. One one could imagine a change in American administrations and a and a very different um, different relationship. In Europe, but at the same time, I do think this is going to lead to a number of structural changes that are going to be harder to reverse. You know, one that I perceive is as our energy futures at the federal levels diverge, and as European feeling is so high about um, the U.S.'s choices with respect to its energy future, um, it strikes me that even if we had a president who was interested in negotiating a trade deal with Europe. It's very hard to imagine um, negotiating deals that seem to advantage U.S. corporations or that seem to harmonize regulations in some of the ways that that American business, which, of course, favored Paris, was hoping for. Similarly, as we you know, so California doesn't need Middle East oil anymore and Europe doesn't even know that's the future that we that we move toward. Um, but we have an administration that is now sort of doubling down on really challenging intra-Arab Middle Eastern politics and the military end of that. And we do, you know, we get a bunch of help from NATO in those areas. And you're, you know, it's, it's hard it's hard to imagine um, German governments, for example, being very excited about future U.S. adventures in, in Iraq and Yemen.
1: OK, so let me let me I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I'm not even sure I buy this argument, but I do want to I, I want to give the, the, the Trumpistas their the benefit of the doubt, which is to say you can argue that Trump did not deliver his message with any sort of elegance whatsoever at NATO. And uh, if the story in foreign policy that came out last week was any indication, the private dinner was even worse than the public speech in terms of, of Trump's boorishness. But nonetheless, one of the effects of this is that you do have countries in NATO now deciding we can no longer rely on the United States as a trusted ally. Therefore, one of the things we are going to have to do is increase our own defense capabilities, which paradoxically is the very thing that Donald Trump wanted them to do. Um, And to be fair, this is not just Donald Trump. This is actually a bipartisan complaint that has lasted for God, you could argue decades. But I mean, it goes back at a minimum to Bob Gates's sort of blistering speech to NATO. I want to say in 2009, Barack Obama articulated the same sentiment uh, in his interview with Jeffrey Goldberg last year. So I guess my question is, is that as boorish and as inelegant as Trump has been, in the end, does this still wind up getting us to a place that actually would serve American interests in the sense of, forcing our NATO allies to actually contribute more. And that as ugly as the relationship is now, that'll eventually be repaired and we will actually have stronger European NATO allies as a result.
0: Well, it's funny you say that, Dan, because one of the consolations of, of getting older or of being this age where you're old enough to remember things and young enough to still remember them is that I remember the 90s. And In the 90s, we were already begging the Europeans to spend more on their own defense. And in the 90s, the Europeans were looking at us and saying, everything is good, you guys are totally high, and you are ridiculous to want to spend more money on your own defense. Um, And the great fear of all Republicans and some Democrats was that this small amount of money that Europeans spent on defense, they would spend through the EU rather than through NATO. And I can't tell you how many person years of the time of the US national security establishment were spent on trying to trying to um foil is probably too strong a word discourage um movement toward um European defense cooperation within the within the EU and the the amount of oxygen molecules and coffee cups consumed at think tank events about the terrible future that awaited if, God forbid, the Europeans started putting more money into their own defense through the EU. And, you know, here we are. And um, so in NATO, you've got to have the U.S., which, you know, as you said, is is proving sort of boorish and awkward to have around. And the U.K., which, you know, insisted on voting itself out of the EU and is now sort Sort of you know, behaving like I mean, I won't even make the divorce analogy because it's just too painful. But, but the EU, you know, the EU and,
1: and Turkey, don't forget Turkey.
0: Enter, oh, thank you for reminding me about Turkey, yes, which is I don't even have an analogy for that one. Right. So, so you, you increasingly are going to have a group of European countries that say, okay, you're all counting on us to do stuff, but then we have this body, NATO, where some of you all are very difficult. And then we have this other body where y'all aren't difficult because you're not there. And where we can sit down together in our sort of marvelous, pragmatic, technocratic way, should they manage not to drive their economies into the ground again.
1: It's um, a big if, that's important, but which go is ahead. It's a
0: big if. Um, and, and we can actually get things done And may and maybe, you know, there's no reason... That you don't come back to the let's build an EU identity and let's build it through the EU and let's not try to build our EU identity through NATO. So I wonder if, you know, in a funny way, we haven't actually produced this produced this European defense integration scenario that the center right in the US, you know, spent the first fifteen years post-Cold War trying frantically to avoid.
1: That was an excellent answer and one that I was hoping you were going to give, because that, was, that would have been the answer I would have given as, uh, as well, which is, we, we like to joke about how the Europeans simultaneously do not, you know, the, 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 throughout the history of the post-war alliance, the Europeans have sort of, you know, gone between skill and charybdis in terms of the U.S., simultaneously wanting us— not to withdraw under any circumstances whatsoever to maintain, you know, to keep the Americans in. But at the same time, if we actually articulate a voice on these kinds of things, starting to resent the fact that the United States is actually doing that. And I think you have hit upon what was a very long buried, uh, similar sort of set of complaints that Americans have had about Europe when it comes to collective security, which is on the one hand, we very much want the Europeans to contribute and kick in you know, their proper defense spending so that there is some degree of burden sharing within the NATO alliance. But on the other hand, God forbid they actually bolster their capabilities and furthermore organize amongst themselves through the European Union rather than through NATO, because that would potentially be problematic uh, in terms of what we would be able to do in terms of NATO. So it, it is worth pointing out that that we are, you know, the the U.S. sort of, you know, Goldilocks' problem is now being revealed as well, I guess. Um, but I do Goldie,
0: Goldilocks is the least of our problems.
1: Yes. Um, the, the other thing, though, I will suggest is that I, I would say two things on this, just step back for a second, which is first, it is striking the degree to which that since Donald Trump has won, all of the European elections that have held, been held since then have, by and large, gone against the populists. Um, the populace have either not done as well as expected or underperformed, or you have actually had out and out small L liberals win, whether we're talking about the Austro- Austrian presidential election, the Dutch elections, um, the French elections. Uh, I think the Ren- there's an Italian referendum that is a, a counterexample. And then, of course, the British elections, where it's hard to... Ex- it, it, the only winner in the British elections was schadenfreude. Um, but uh, but nonetheless, the, the Theresa May did not do terribly well. I guess two questions to ask here. The first is, 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 does it turn out that for all the concerns about populist nationalism, that the primary way to vaccinate the country against this, or vaccinate the world against this, was to elect Donald Trump as president? And which everyone could see this is what would happen if you have a populist winning. But second, is it also possible that in fact Europe is the exception? That there, the rest of the world, weirdly enough, is actually kind of comfortable with Trump as president, because Trump as president turns the United States into a country that they more understand, um, in the same way that in the way that China understands princelings, and so they know how to deal with someone like Jared Kushner, and Saudi Arabia knows that they now are dealing with a president that likes gaudy, flashy orbs, and also all they have to do is sort of dazzle him with uh, with with a good PR blitz, and then they get to blockade you know gutter.
0: Well, I um. I'm going to sort of, I'm going to reject the premise because we haven't had a rejecting the, we haven't had a rejecting the premise yet this episode. Um, and I, I am actually concerned that people will grow overly complacent about the recent round of, of results in Europe. And this is not, this is not to take anything away from the, the people who have been very energized and who have fought very hard to get the various results that, that have been, have been achieved in Europe. But if you take the Brits first. Um, you know, one of the things that you see is a gain in um, sort of more extreme parties. And there's an argument that um, the Northern Irish Protestant Party that now holds, that now holds the balance of power, you know, the conservative party in Britain is not, it contains within it conservatives that Americans would recognize as as right-wing conservatives, and it contains within it conservatives that Americans would recognize as right-wing Democrats. But the the, the Northern Irish, those folks are real right-wingers.
1: The DUP, um, yes, yes. The
0: DUP are real right-wingers in a very uncomfortable way. Um,
1: but I will U- say, I, I, I do want to push back, though, because that in some ways, that was an artifact of the election result. The election result actually wiped out a lot of the the sort of smaller parties. It wiped um,
0: out the moderate smaller parties. Um you know, and that's not that's, well wiped and, out. And, UKIP
1: and, too, so
0: yes. Um, but you're you're also left in the UK case with two main parties. I mean, how can I put this? Nobody thinks nobody thinks that this is the beginning of a of a wonderful renaissance for Labour in its current form. Um,
1: I, I would disagree. Th- I think some people on the left genuinely <laughs> do think that. I think you're underestimating that. that no, kind you're totally,
0: of that. you're totally right, and I apologize to the people who who do think that. You're not nobody. I just disagree with you. I,
1: um, I disagree. I I I agree with you and disagree with them as well. I'm just pointing out that empirically, right. there there's this weird, yeah, there's enthusiasm. No, it, you're it, it,
0: totally, you're totally yeah. right. Um, so I don't think you have a movement. You do not have a movement back towards stability in the UK. Okay, that's <laughs> point one. Um, point, point two. Again, if you look at the Netherlands, um, that was an increase in vote for extremist parties, a decrease in vote for centrist parties, but they got together. Um, yeah. So you know, the, the good, like the good news is that people were able to recognize a common threat and come together. The French case. Um, I mean, I may be giving away my sort of small R Republican tendencies, which I bet you didn't know I had any, but um, I. The specter of a legislature without real opposition trying to make major, major political changes. Um, There was a commentator on the BBC yesterday who said something that I think we really need to reckon with in the industrialized societies. He said, looking at the way these results are trending right now, the main opposition in France is going to be extra parliamentary. Mm -hmm. Which Which is another way of saying is it's going to be a battle between those in charge and those in the streets. And that doesn't sound like the death of populism to me. That sounds like the moving of populism to other spheres. So I hope I'm wrong. I'd be I'd be delighted to be wrong. I wish Macron every success. Um, but I just think you haven't solved the problem common to the U.S. and a lot of other societies, and not just industrialized societies, that you have. Somewhere between 15 and 30 percent of your electorates that isn't voting doesn't care, doesn't feel like politics is about them, doesn't feel like their concerns can be addressed through the political process. And that's dangerous.
1: So no, that's sorry
0: a- sorry, to, sorry, to, sorry to introduce the wet blanket.
1: No no, no, I think the wet blanket is appropriate. I, 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 I am concerned actually that some people are now um, that there's a suggestive complacency that the populist nationalist wave is crested. Um, where it's not yet obvious to me if that's the case. So.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, I should say, if you go further east in Europe, and if you you look at Hungary and Poland, there's right. no sign that the populist wave has crested. Or no, they're the actually well, they're actually in
1: power. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. the
0: populist wave has not crested in the Philippines either. No, true. Um. So.
1: So I believe we had a reader question about uh, global governance. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Was there going to be? Um, was there going to be sort of a spike in global governance as a as a sort of a, a um, I'm trying to think of a of a safer work way of putting this as a as a response to Donald Trump? How's that? <laughs>
1: um, I am pessimistic on this front. Uh, I actually have an article coming out, I think, in the Fletcher Forum on World Affairs sometime in the next uh, couple of weeks on whether or not populists govern differently in terms of foreign policy compared to other foreign policy leaders or other kinds of, of uh, elected leaders. And the conclusion I came to, or one of the conclusions I came to is that however you define populism, they will hate global governance, um, which is to say, generally speaking, populists are defined by what they oppose. You know, Populists believe that you can divine some sort of general will from the people, um, and therefore they are, they are big opponents of pluralism. They are bigger opponents of checks and balances uh, placed on their uh, placed on their on their ability to uh, rule by plebiscite or rule by decree or just rule by direct action. Um, populists also tend to hate elites. Uh, they tend to argue that elites are responsible for running the country into the ground, and therefore only true common sense from uh, from uh, from salt of the earth people can can make the country great again. Can we can and,
0: we just can I just pause and introduce yeah. a. a a tactful correction there, which is populists derive a lot of mileage out of anti-elite rhetoric, although usually they are movements led by elites themselves.
1: Oh, sure, Michael. Go. They might very well be elites, but nonetheless, rhetorically, they will attack elites. And also, I would argue that left populists and right populists are very different in terms of defining who the elites are. Left populists tend to focus on the sort of the millionaires and billionaires, to quote Bernie Sanders right populists tend to focus on people like you and me they focus on technocrats um and uh government because we're sure
0: as hell not
1: billionaires no we ain't billionaires no um and then finally populists don't like cosmopolitanism as a general rule they they believe in a very powerful national identity um the thing that global governance does is you know global governance represents the sort of perfect you know villain for populists because global governance as we understand it, should impose some sort of constraint on uh, national government's capacity to act. The whole point of it is to foster coordination and cooperation at the global level. It is, by definition, run by elites and cosmopolitans. Um, so there are a sufficient number of states that are led by people who are either populists themselves or feel vulnerable to populists, such that it is possible that, for example, Macron and Merkel will sort of have a rebirth of the European Union project, as we understand it. Are we going to see any new global initiatives in response to Trump? I'm extremely dubious about that. Um, it, w- it would require it would require enough states for whom anti-Americanism is more powerful than populism. I guess would be the way to put it.
0: Yeah, well this I think actually nicely sums up several of this question, nicely sums up several of the of the trends we've been talking about on this, on this episode. Um, because I think one of the things that is going to become apparent in, in coming years is that there is more global governance than people tend to perceive because in recent years global governance has become diffused and is exercised by a mix of state and non-state actors. So if you think of global governance as something that the UN does, then, you know-
1: It's a very narrow vision, yeah. It's a very narrow
0: vision and a not particularly highly functioning vision in, in, in many, although not all areas. However, if you look at global governance as something that on any given issue, a sort of shifting coalition of nation state actors, local actors, corporate for-profit actors, um, civil society actors, and um, traditional supranational bodies are kind of mixing together in an unholy brew to constrain what you or I can or can't do, can or can't buy, can or can't see. Um, That is, I think, going to become, it is a trend that is going to continue to accelerate It'll be decelerated because the US government won't be contributing to it, but US business will be continuing to contribute it, as we've seen with the sort of US business's eagerness to keep contributing to climate. Um, you know, major sort of the internet will continue to be sort of both a vector for global governance and one of the major areas that is go- a, a complex state and non state actor coalition. So, you know, in a funny way, global governance is going to keep impinging on us, and that's going to keep making populists uncomfortable and keep providing sort of the perfect rallying cry for populists to, to push back against, you know, including, including the coalition of people that I was talking about Trump building building an electoral victory around. True. So so that's where that's where I see it going.
1: So I agree. I mean, in the sense of one of the other one of the other possibilities and I think you could see this particularly on the environment, but there's a whole cluster of transnational policy issues, whether it's climate change or health um, or even transportation um, and tourism, where it would not shock me if you see the emergence of a 21st century Hanseatic League. Um, where essentially you have global governance by cities, and I want—I say this, having mocked this idea by and large for about the last twenty years. This has been around for a while, um, and whenever I used to see it emerge, I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever, you know, go with your theme, and and that sounds pretty. Um, but I have to admit, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that weirdly, the Trump administration might actually help accelerate this trend, in no small part because the. The other way in which you could think that there is a global political cleavage is, is urban-rural, essentially. That people who live in cities have decidedly different political preferences uh, than those people who do not live in cities. It's not shocking that the sort of heart of the Remain campaign in Great Britain was London. It is no shock that if you take a look at uh, you know, the, the U.S. 2016 election, Trump did awfully in the cities. Republicans did awfully in the cities. I'm actually not— sure that there's a member of the Republican uh, caucus in the House of Representatives that represents an urban zip code, um, which is interesting if you think about it. And so, but that's said- I'm going to
0: pause you. I'm going to pause you there yeah. because in that case, it's interesting to note that the distinction you're making is urban on the one hand and suburban on the other, and then rural is kind of the sad little tag along.
1: Um, well, no, true. I so- I would I would say that rural is very clearly you know nationalist, urban is very clearly cosmopolitan, and you can argue that the battle takes place in the suburbs and the exurbs um, because you know it's it's been a, a to and fro. But I guess my point is is that if you have this emergence of this sort kind of global governance, you know, based in cities, that is simply going to exacerbate the perceptions by those not living in cities of oh my God, these you know, these 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 coastal elites. Um, are, you know, globalizing without paying attention to the Bible or the Constitution, yada, yada, yada. And it it winds up reifying the cleavage uh, that we've been talking about for much of this Oh, my God.
0: Reifying that cleavage?
1: I know. Shut up. That was,
0: like— yeah. Although the other, I mean, before before anybody sort of gets all excited and thinks that Dan's Hanseatic League of Cities is the answer to everything, which I know, don't. City, I'm
1: trying to say it'll call, cities, create problems.
0: Yeah, and cities are also in the U.S., but not only in the U.S., where we have the most intense um, income inequality, health mm. inequality, so on and so on. So, so that's you know, in in a funny way, that's a, a whole nother kind of level of resource allocation competition. That you that, that that kind of structure of governance um, brings in on itself <sighs> um, we didn't get through all the listeners questions but um, but you guys are the best and that was that was a really fun way to structure an episode and um, you know next time well who knows we could do it again next time or there could be um, there could be a war starting somewhere that we could be covering next time and that's maybe, Maybe, um, as our last question, um, Dan, we're taping in Um, Mm mid-June. When we come back and tape in the next month, um, will there be a conflict going on somewhere that it isn't going on now?
1: My prediction is, in fact, yes. One of the dramatic things about the Trump administration so far is that even though I've been very clear that I think they're running American foreign policy into the ground, it is rather startling that they have not really had to face any serious or acute foreign policy crisis. I mean, they've had problems with North Korea, the thing, the, the GCC embargo of gutter is, is certainly problematic. But these are, at this point, either a continuation of what the status quo was or a minor skirmish. Uh, it will be interesting to see if there is a fuller-blown conflagration. And I would argue that potentially, we've already seen this, that that sort of Trump's speech in Saudi Arabia seems to have given the Saudis a belief that they now have carte blanche to do what they want in the region. And it would not shock me if that leads to a wider conflict that already exists in Yemen and Syria and what have you.
0: And if you twin that with rumblings coming out of Israel-Palestine that we will have another summer war in Gaza, we could have two key allies of the Trump administration having launched um, wars that uh, one might view as wars of choice in the next month. So, and the uh,
1: Trump administration, which claims that they wanted to get out of the Middle East, suddenly ensnared in those conflicts even more.
0: Oh, same as it ever was, same as it ever was.
1: Um, See you next time. Yes, have a good summer, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page, at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.